Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Belcampo. Let's be unabashed here. I love Belcampo. I have a direct relationship with a working farm. I have direct impact on the food supply chain. And frankly, I'm sort of addicted to their meats. It's it so good. So you good. know, I actually have a hard time sometimes with super grassy meats. They're just not that delicious. I don't. Uh, sometimes not all meats the same. And hidden hidden fact: this may may bum people out, but I don't always love beautiful pork. It doesn't always taste good. But something about Belcampo has changed my brain. And look, leopards got to eat. And when we eat, we love Belcampo. That's organic, humane, pasture raised, grass fed, non GMO. You know, it comes from a climate positive farm, which means it's carbon negative. It's 100% non-GMO. Um, it's lower in fat. It has more good fats. It's high in omega-3 fatty acids. It's basically the best meat that you can buy. And we highly recommend it. And with a farm, again, just want to reiterate because it's, it's topical right now that uses regenerative practices, which is sort of like the holy grail of farming: carbon sequestration. Um, we take we like restores health into the land and to the grasses. It's really an incredible, uh, if we're going to say nose to snout, or that's the same thing, tail to snout. Imagine that way in terms of how people are thinking about stewardship of animals. If you want to try it out, go to thereadystate.com slash Belcampo and use the code thereadystate10 at checkout for 10% off your next order. Enjoy. Diana Rogers is a registered dietitian and real food nutritionist and writer living on a working organic farm. She runs a clinical nutrition practice, hosts the Sustainable Dish podcast, and speaks internationally about human nutrition, sustainability, animal welfare, and social justice. She's written two books and helped to produce the short film Soft Slaughter, which won a Real Food Media Award. Her book has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, Edible Boston, and Two Market. Later this year, she's releasing a new book and film project called Sacred Cow, which explores the important role of animals in our food system. Welcome to the Ready State Podcast, Diana. We are really delighted to have you today. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to get started with uh, sort of a large question. And uh, what I guess I'm wondering is, you know, but we obviously just introduced you, but, and, and you're a real food nutritionist, you work and live on an organic farm, you've written a few books, you're working on a book, you have uh, helped produce a short film. So I guess what I'm wondering is if you could give us a little Reader's Digest version of how you um, became passionate about this subject and what your background is. Sure. Um, I have always loved being outside. And actually, my, my summer job when I was in high school and college was working on a farm um, on eastern Long Island where I grew up. And um, I met uh, my husband in college and I was a fine arts major. He was an English major, but he always had this very strong environmental side. And after a couple of years in like the quote unquote real workforce, he realized he wanted to be an organic farmer. And so we, uh, we moved, we were living in Portland, Oregon. We moved back to Massachusetts where he's from and um, he started 
working. He, he got a master's in soil science and then started, you know, working on a real farm to learn all the practical things you can't learn in grad school, like how to drive a tractor and, and all those <laughs> practical things. Um, and so it's been um, a little over 18 years at this point where, um, you know, he's been a farm manager. We've, we've, uh, I was um, at one point, um, doing more of the front of the house stuff, running our CSA program and weddings and lots of events and things like that. And then I decided to go back to school, uh, for nutrition because, um, in my mid twenties, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. I went gluten-free, but still had all these blood sugar issues. And so I kind of, um, you know, in addition to loving being around farming was, um, really struggling myself with, you know, what is that ideal diet that, um, you know, will help me with my blood sugar. Um, I ended up finding Weston A. Price and then paleo and, um, really fixed me. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I wrote a couple of cookbooks and, um, I've been friends with Rob Wolf ever since I kind of got into the scene and I've always wanted to write a book on just focusing on meat and, you know, what is the most sustainable diet for the planet and, you know, how do animals play into that? And I think there's a lot of people out there that, um, you know, are concerned about the, their impact on the planet, rightly so, and, you know, very concerned about longevity and, you know, optimal human health. And when those two worlds merge, it ends up looking a lot like a vegetarian type or vegan diet. And I think that that's incredibly misguided. And there aren't a lot of people talking about how uh, animals, especially ruminant animals like cows, um, are actually one of our best tools at mitigating climate change, um, provide one of the most nutrient dense foods that humans can possibly eat. Um, what are the ethical implications of this? How would we feed the world this way? And, you know, what is the most ideal diet for, you know, looking at a more ancestral evolutionary biology perspective? And, you know, I think this community of, you know, folks that are into real food and ancestral ways, you know, the idea of regenerative agriculture and sort of mimicking nature in our food production, it makes a lot of sense because we're already, you know, on board from the nutrition end of it. And so, uh, so that's the book that comes out July 14th. And um, I also have a, it's actually a feature documentary film that will be coming out in the fall. Uh, so the book is a, a very uh, science-based um, text, uh, and then the film is really intended to reach all those people that probably won't pick up the book. That you know, there's a lot of young people out there that are looking to digest their information, you know, in a quicker way, and video is really the way they can do that. And there's just been so many plant-based propaganda films coming out, you know, being shown in schools, and you know, really powerfully swaying people that I felt that a film um, that really gave people the big picture of why farming mirroring nature is so critical um, would be also really useful. So we've got the book and the film coming out. And in both of these, it was really more like a, like a four year process, you know, putting all this stuff together. So it's, it's been a long time. And you still bet, have time yeah. to feed cows yeah. and 
<laughs> Holy moly, you guys are amazing. Well, so yeah, that was that was amazing. First of all, thank you. That was like the greatest Reader's Digest version we've ever gotten. But <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. But I want to just uh, start telling you a quick story, and and because I'm wondering if you relate to it, we have a dear friend Molly who also was not diagnosed as a celiac until her late 20s. In fact, it was Kelly who suggested to her that she might be a celiac and should sort of go down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also was an artist, by the way. Um, she had an MF, she studied, she had an MFA as well. And she had, she told us this funny story, which I'm wondering if you relate to. Um, after she cleaned up her diet and, you know, just like you found a, you know, started following a pretty strict paleo diet and literally um, described uh, almost having like this mental awakening and feeling like she'd been in a fog for her entire childhood. And she said, you know what, if I had learned as a child that I was a celiac, I think I would be an accountant. She said, I actually find artists to be really annoying. Um, but it, it made sense to me because I was in, you know, I was eating two bowls of cereal for breakfast before school and I was in a mental fog. So I just, I, I wanted to share that with you as another person. who. Yeah. I mean, I definitely had some learning disability stuff that kind of went away after I cleaned up my diet. Um, reading was really hard for me. Words would jump swirl all over the page. And I think that's, um, I would actually, I never read an entire book until, um, like my second year in college. Um, and I was so good at art that I would just sort of read the cliff notes or the jacket of the book and then make a really amazing poster or diorama of what I thought the book was about. And I was so good at it that I actually was able to skate through the whole system as a faker, <laughs> basically. Um, and it wasn't until I was in college um, and, uh, and you know, basically in grad school when I, when I, you know, was able to get straight A's and, you know, zoom through books and, um, yeah, diet has a huge impact on your, on your intellect, I think. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things I heard that just is really amazing is that so many of our friends who've become interested, become experts, and clearly you guys have taken it to the, to, to the, as far as you can, you know, living what you're talking about. I mean, if Juliet told me we're becoming organic farmers, I would definitely pause for a second. Um, but you know, you, you found that food really was a way of healing yourself. Um, you know, we know, I know Rob had a similar experience, Rob Wolf, you know, that really, you know, he realized that food was the way in for his, for his sanity and for his health and how he felt and how his joints, so many of our friends have ended up this way. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you said was, which is really interesting because a lot of people are so tolerant, they can eat whatever they want they think they can and they don't realize how much better they can feel but this sort of move towards the propaganda where people say hey i feel like i want to do something about the planet or about climate do you think it's just that we have guilt because we're so far removed from sort of industrial factory farming and that seems like an easy thing to do or Mm -hmm. is it that's just the lowest piece of fruit to say well look i'm doing something i'm doing my part because i'm not going to eat a hamburger or i'm not going to eat a organic egg. I mean, do you know what I mean? Is that, is, mm-hmm. is that a component to this, you think? There are so many forces at play here. Um, I mean, I think there's a, first of all, there's a lot of money to be made in making ultra processed vegan foods. And so these companies, you know, are, are largely profiting off this grassroots network of, um, of evangelical, you know, uh, plant-based followers that, um, you know, I think, well, look, we're removed from food production. We, 
we've uh, allowed animal farming to become industrialized, which is not the way that these biological creatures are supposed to be um, living. And it's, it seems really horrific. And, um, you know, we're really afraid of death. We don't like the idea of death. Most Americans don't have a will. Um, so there's just so many layers to this. And, you know, red meat is bloody. It represents power and wealth and, um, you know, death again. And so what we've done is um, scapegoated meat for really what processed food has done to our health. And um, we're scapegoating, you know, the animal, the cow for really what fossil fuels are doing to our environment. And so like right now we're seeing, you know, cities, uh, having clear skies, pollution's going down, you know, there's still the same amount of, of beef cattle in, in the world. And, um, and also when we look at what people are buying at grocery stores, you know, what, what are people panic buying? It's not beyond burger. It's real food, right? It's real meat. And so people are not going to stop eating meat. Death is not going to stop happening. And so our only solution is to do it in a better way. You, you know, I, um, because I, I've known Rob for 15 years or longer, I'm highly aware of the, the people that he talks about and what goes on. And I've sort of stalked you quietly on Instagram. <laughs> and really one of the things that, one of the reasons we want to talk to you is that I feel like you've really done a beautiful job of illuminating some of the social justice aspects of mm-hmm. of sort of the 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 migration towards sort of uh, a veganism or plant based diet as mm-hmm. as a solution, and you point out regularly all the time. And it, it, maybe you could talk about some of the some of the posts that you made, or talk about um, the fact that maybe that you know, across the planet, across developing nations and people who are food insecure, that is, and, and definitely with there's, you know, the patriarchy, it is not the same thing. So is, could you talk about that for a second? Because I, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm trying not to step on mm-hmm. this because I think what, when you wrote that for me, it was, I was like, oh, okay, I really need to think even larger about my food and the implications of the food choices I make. Well, and mm-hmm. if I could just sort of tack on to Kelly, that part of Kelly's question, I mean, you know, First of all, just for me, thank you for thinking about and caring about that. I mean, you know, just there are so many equity issues involved with diet and food and farming and, um, you know, how we are able to access food that I just want to say thank you for, you know, sort of bringing up the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, a few years ago, uh, maybe more than a few years ago, actually, I went to a conference at Harvard called Just Food, and it was talking about social justice and the food industry. And... I sat through a presentation um, by a Latina woman who was talking about farmer's markets in the South and how the last thing they want are skinny white girls telling them to eat more salad. (laughs) And I was like, you know, who is your, what's your profile of a dietitian? You know, that's, that's who I envision when I, when I think of who a dietitian is and these celebrity chefs going to farmer's markets and the idea that, you know, all we have to do is just tell people to eat more fruits and vegetables and, you know, there's this idea of food sovereignty and, and, you know, people should be eating their culturally appropriate foods and this push away from animal-based foods into this plant-based space really sort of violates every first nation people, every traditional culture. I mean, 
um, I just, you know, I've got a big problem with that. And, um, you know, there's, there's people in America who are really food insecure. And, you know, one of the things I point out in the book um, and in the film, I mean, we're still editing it and this piece is in the film as of right now, but we're, we're highly critical of Meatless Mondays. And that's because in New York City, the biggest school system in, in the US, um, they're following Meatless Mondays. And 70% of the kids who attend the public schools in New York are low income or homeless. And so to take meat away from them and to put in propaganda all over the school, talking about how unhealthy it is to eat meat and how they're doing such good things for the planet by eating beans instead of a burger, it gives them the message that meat is bad, meat is bad for the planet, it's unhealthy to eat. And for a lot of kids, that is the most nutrient dense or the only meal they get all day. And that and that's across the planet, right? Will you talk just a little, expand on that a little mm -hmm. more? Because I think one of the pieces that you, the pieces of research you mentioned was that you know in in developing countries, emerging countries mm -hmm. where that have, where kids have access to meat, there's a difference in their growth and in their brain development. Right. So there was only one study that's a randomized controlled trial that's looked at meat versus less meat or. Um, no meat in kids. And what they did was they went to um, a population of kids who were food insecure in Kenya. One group got a meat supplement on top of their, their normal diet. Another group got extra calories and another group got milk. And the meat group by far um, outperformed um, academically and physically and behaviorally. Uh, compared to the other groups. And interestingly, the next group that did well wasn't the milk group, it was the over calories group. Um, so when we look at, you know, what does milk do? It, it inhibits iron absorption and what do growing kids really need and what is the largest nutrient deficiency worldwide? It's iron. Um, and so the idea that milk is a suitable substitute for um, animal protein in the form of meat is, is you know, not fair to all of these kids. Uh, and in the film, we actually highlight um, a scientist who works in developing countries and talks about how, you know, in the countries where he works, there might not be a doctor for hundreds of miles, let alone a CVS or a Walgreens where you can get a B12 supplement and your iron tablets. And so uh, these people have to rely on animal-based foods. And in many cases, Animal-based foods are the only things that thrive in the environment because you can't just crop everywhere. You can't just grow soybeans and corn and rice in all places. Uh, the, the amount of land we have available for cropping versus the amount of land we have available for pasture, for grazing, is much, much smaller. So um, in a lot of very dry, arid places, you can graze goats or cattle or camels or, or lots of other animals, but you can't crop. And cropping is very risky. You have to own land, which many women can't own land, but they can own livestock. Um, and uh, you have to buy the seeds. There's, it's highly risky because if any storm comes, it could wipe out your entire crop. You have to be able to store it and process it. Uh, for example, in the Congo, you can only, you know, most of the land can only grow cassava, but cassava doesn't store very well. And so you need to process it into flour and they just don't have the infrastructure to be able to do that very well. So there's just so many reasons why the idea that the whole world should be eating less meat is uh, quite harmful to nutrition and to the environment. Thank you so much. I really, a couple of points that uh, I just sometimes are completely lost in this conversation.
Yeah, and, and I do, um, there's a couple words you said when uh, describing sort of all of the vegan movies and sort of uh, push towards a plant-based diet. And I love that you actually are calling them what they are, which is propaganda. And, you know, you also use the word evangelical. I think that some, some of those two words really hit home for me when you're talking about those things. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I know in Sacred Cow, and I'm sure in your documentary, you are challenging many of the assumptions around meat consumption, social justice being one of them. But I know you also talk about uh, sort of the uh, environmental concerns. I know people, there's a lot of concerns that people who eat a lot of meat are at higher risk of getting cancer. So could you sort of address mm -hmm. some of those other things beyond, beyond social justice? Sure. Well, I think that you can't have an argument about eating meat without first recognizing the nutritional importance of it. And so that's where we start with um, in the film and in the book. And so once we're all on the same page that meat is a nutrient-dense food, that humans are omnivores and we require the nutrients in meat, then we can move forward and talk about um, how to raise it in a, a more environmental way and uh, in an ethical way. And so the studies against meat are uh, largely based on observational studies, which cannot prove cause. They look at two different populations and they'll try to extrapolate, you know, one food group and, you know, pin all of the, the dietary uh, blame on that one food group when there's so many other factors that are often are not taken into consideration. So, you know, when you look at a typical meat eater in the U.S. versus a typical vegetarian, there's a lot of lifestyle differences. So your typical vegetarian is more likely to do yoga and meditate and take supplements and less likely to smoke and drink as much as a typical meat-eating American. Um, there are studies that have looked at people who shop at health food stores, so therefore adjusting for that lifestyle shift, and they've found no difference at all in longevity between omnivores, uh, vegetarians, and vegans. We also see that um, vegetarians and vegans are much more likely to suffer from uh, nutrient deficiencies, which can lead to a whole host of problems. And, uh, and that the nutrients in meat are best absorbed from meat and not from a supplement. And so um, my case for meat is very, very strong in the book that, um, you know, it's required for optimal health. And when you say meat, you don't just mean, we don't, we're not just saying cows. I think that's what people think, right? Mm -hmm. You're, I mean, sometimes my critique of uh, our friends who are using carnivore or, or only eating meat is primarily their source. And, and again, caveat emptor, let people, you know, solve their problems as long as they can show me the proof through their blood work and their health. But sometimes I'm like, hey, you know, there are lots of different kinds of meat, including mm -hmm. fish, including, um, you know, uh, you know, we, one of the things that Juliet and I personally try to do, and I recognize our food privilege here in Marin, is we try to eat lots of different kinds of vegetables and fruits and, you know, as many different varieties. And we actually try to think about that in our protein sources as well, and especially our animal protein sources, instead of just ex exclusively eating a single animal protein source. Totally. Yes. I mean, I live in on, on an organic vegetable farm primarily. That's what we do here. And so we're eating all kinds of weird radishes and Asian greens, kinds of funky stuff that most people don't have access to. And I think that eating a mixture of plants and animals is really important. Um, I do see the benefits in a carnivore diet for some people who have like a totally trashed gut or whatever. 
Um, so I, I don't like totally push that aside, but I oh, think no, for, for the sure. majority of, yeah, for the majority of healthy people as a dietitian, my professional recommendation is to eat a, a wide variety of, um, both plants and animals, um, as whole as possible. Right. Um, we, Julian and I tell people, um, you know, yes, we're plant-based. That means we eat as many plants as we can with the best animal proteins we can afford. And then people, and then we're like, oh yes, we're meat-based. We eat as the best meats we can afford with as many leafy greens as we can shove down our throats. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, honestly, my favorite animal protein source is fish. Um, I, and, and fish is incredibly nutrient dense. And I think, you know, even vegetarians, if you get enough fermented dairy and egg, uh, in your diet, you can, you can probably be pretty healthy. Um, it's, it's the complete absence of all animal products that I have a concern about, and especially for children, babies and children. You know, I know that, um, you sort of alluded to it a little bit, but I obviously know that you are not necessarily advocating for our current industrial meat system as it is. And mm -hmm. I know you offer something you call regenerative agriculture as a solution. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what that means? And does it scale? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea with regenerative agriculture is, is basically farming with nature and um, mimicking the movement of uh, when it comes to animals anyway, um, mimicking the movement of, you know, like if you picture uh, the Serengeti with these massive herds of wildebeest moving around, um, they're not in one place because they constantly have to be on the move. There's predators on the edge of the woods stalking them. Um, you know, they're going to eat up all the all the grass in one area. So they have to keep on moving for new water sources and to stay away from predators. And when they move off the land that they just graze, it actually allows that, that land to rest and regenerate. And that's when the carbon sequestration can happen. And so we can actually mimic that as farmers and ranchers with electric fencing. And so there's, there's really two ways to do grass-fed meat, right? One way would be continuous grazing where let's imagine a 10 acre field and 10 cows and they're just all season in that same 10 acres they have access to the whole thing and what ends up happening is they're going to browse and overgraze their favorite you know grasses because it's a pasture isn't just one type of grass there's there's multiple different uh, species in there and some taste a little bit better to cattle than others and so they'll overgraze and kill the, the grasses that they prefer, and they'll not graze the grasses that they don't like as much. Um, any animal that has a parasite load will then give it to all the other animals. And so you end up with less healthy land, more bare spots, and less healthy animals. Um, in contrast, if you took that same 10 cows and broke the pasture into 10 one-acre plots and moved the cows um, to each different pasture, giving the one they were just on a break until they've circulated through all 10 pastures, what you're doing is forcing the cattle to eat the entire one acre all at once um, as quickly as they can because uh, uh, they're going to be moving. Um, and so you, when you move them to the next one, that grass actually gets a nice long rest period where it can regenerate. Um, the birds can swoop down and eat any of the parasites and it's just a much healthier system and you have healthier land and he healthier animals. You know, we have these goats in our, um, you know, we have rule fires here in Northern California and mm -hmm. they've cleverly 
in order to manage the hills around here have several herds of goats that just destroy and knock down in a very short order a ton of grass. It's pretty remarkable when we see what happens. Then they move them on with an electric fence. And Juliet and I are blown away at the rebound and the health of the, the systems once those goats have moved on and that grass has come back. It's, it, those areas have come back. It's pretty remarkable to have seen how with no fire control previously, then putting in the goats into our ecosystem, how the ecosystem changed and become even better. Yeah. In fact, I actually talked to the park warden or ranger head guy uh, in Marin County about that and almost featured that in the film. Oh, I love it. Mm -hmm. So I, it makes sense. You know, we really try to have everyone have a, you know, a local CSA, have, know where their meat comes from. We have a lot of choices around here. I think one of the, the criticisms or an easy criticism to lob is that we can't feed everyone with sustainable uh, ungulate, uh, you know, meat practices. Is that, is that a truism or not a truism? Does it yeah, scale or not? Yeah, it does, you know, does regenerative agriculture scale and, you know, sort of connecting that back to the social justice issues we talked mm -hmm. about before. Right. Yeah. I'm forgetting that you asked me that before and I didn't answer that. So let me answer it now. Um, so in the film, we actually feature a rancher that's um, in Chihuahua, Mexico, who is working with a collective of ranchers that are regenerating one million acres in the state of Chihuahua. Oh, just one million. Um, just a million. <laughs> um, so the, the fact is, this is the only solution that we have moving forward, and it can work. Uh, there's a lot of underutilized and unutilized grazing uh, options in the United States. And if uh, we go through the math, Rob and I go through the math in the book, and if we were to stop growing so much corn for cattle, if we were to start using CRP land, uh, which is currently not being grazed, if we were to um, switch to regenerative grazing, that actually increases productivity. They call it the carrying capacity of the land. It, it, it increases the carrying capacity of the land. Um, so if we were to do all of those things, we would have more than enough land to finish all the cattle that we have right now for beef on grass. Um, one thing that I should mention is that um, all cattle actually in the everywhere um, start out on grass. Uh, so they don't spend their entire lives on a feedlot. And that's very different from cattle. Uh, conventional chicken or pork, which do spend their entire lives in a factory farm eating only grain. Uh, cattle are very different because they're ruminants and um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't survive in a feedlot their whole lives. And so uh, all the calf cow operations, all the mama cows are all out on grass right now. Um, and then they only go to a feedlot in their, um, in their last phase. And so they're either finished on grass or finished on, um, in a feedlot. So it's really just finishing the cattle on grass. And yes, we do have the land to finish all the cattle in the United States on grass. So let me tie a couple of questions together. I think a lot of people don't appreciate potentially some of the negative impacts of removing animal product, animal sources of protein and vitamins and minerals. And so they think, hey, I'm going to do this thing because it's for the environment. If we were going to redirect those people and say, hey, you can actually do something for the environment, what would you have pe young people or people who are interested in making a social change put their money in order mm -hmm. to make sort of begin this gigantic sort of cultural shift about how we're thinking about our relationship to, f to food farming. 
Well, actually, now is a fantastic time to get involved in food production. A lot of people are out of work or underemployed right now. And um, in Europe, in, in France, and in many other countries, the government is actually encouraging out-of-work people to go work on farms because they don't have the labor, because the borders are closed and everything. They don't have the labor to harvest everything that they need right now. Um, we're going to see that in the U.S. as well. We're, we have less... Um, transient people across the borders, but we still have a ton of people that, that are harvesting our food or working on ranches that are coming across borders that are not going to be able to get in here. And we're going to need help. We're going to have um, some, some major food shortages coming up. Um, and so people can go volunteer or work part-time on a farm. Uh, that would be a great way to get involved. Um, or just, you know, instead of buying your meat from a typical industrial source, seeking out a more local or regenerative source. And one of the ways that can do that is um, localharvest.org or eatwild.com. Um, I also have a blog post on sacredcow.info where um, we have a list of all the places that I love that um, either ship or will uh, are local, you know, and um, listed, you know, by state. So folks can, you know, just go directly. That's the best way that, um, that's how we work on our farm. We sell direct to the public and that cuts out the middleman. And I think, um, you know, what this pandemic is showing us is that there's a huge interest from people in reassessing everything and growing their own food. Um, you know, home gardening is off the charts right now. It's what I've been focusing on with all my social media lately is just helping people learn how to have their home gardens and then how to support their local um, pasture-raised meat suppliers. That victory um, garden is a great concept, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, but it, it's interesting because seed companies have, uh, a lot of them have closed to the public because they're getting so much interest that they can't, you know, like Johnny seeds, for example, is, is one of our main suppliers here at our farm and they've closed to the public because they were, um, not able to, uh, service their regular farmers, um, because they had so much need from the public. And so, um, we'll be selling at our farm stand seedlings and um, seeds for folks. Uh, you know, not getting into debt, don't being a burden on the on society. Keep yourself healthy. Like these are all other things that we that we say are really important to do if we want a regenerative food system and and a more sustainable life for everybody. Um, one of the I think two points I want to make. One is that. You have rightfully pointed out in one of the posts that really stuck with me, which is we've actually been plant-based for the last like 40 years. And how is it working? Mm -hmm. Could you expand on sort of that idea? Because I don't think people have thought kind of critically that, wow, we have been plant-based because we've held these industrialized seeds and these, these industrial crops have just really gone into this highly processed foods. Yeah, I think there's this perception that, you know, we all need to eat less meat. Clearly, Americans eat too much meat. And I think people are envisioning a 72-ounce steak that everyone's sitting down to at dinner. And that's just actually not reality. We're about eating about two ounces of beef per person per day, a little under that. And so that's clearly not too much. And especially uh, in the book, I go into why I think protein needs to be optimized for, for everybody, kind of no matter what your situation is, right? Weight gain, uh, weight loss, um, recovering from an autoimmune condition, growth, 
um, maintaining muscle mass. I mean, there's kind of no one that, that would not benefit from um, optimizing their protein intake. Uh, when we look at you know, what people are spending money on at grocery stores and what our overall food intake is, about 70% of that is ultra-processed junk that's pretty nutrient-poor. And most of that is you know, from plants, but it's from these ultra-processed grains you know, with these hyper-palatable flavor combinations that spark us to overeat. And, um, you know, that's a form of food waste too. Overconsumption is a form of food waste. So we talk about food waste and everyone's picturing, oh, all these farmers that are plowing in their tomatoes instead of giving them to the homeless people. But actually, I think that, um, you know, overeating is actually a, a huge problem uh, that we need to be addressing as well. Yeah, it's... um you know the what make, makes me think of when you when you mention this is that you know if we had to give ourselves a grade what right, right right now for example in the in this covid crisis we're seeing that disproportionately people of color and people of lower socioeconomic means are being much more stricken because of the comorbidities of of being overweight or obese or having cardiometabolic disease or being insulin insensitive it almost feels like there's some kind of overlap in between sort of what we've been doing and how we are not very healthy. I mean, Juliet and I point out that when we went to high school, chances of us of being diabetic as kids was one in 4,000. Now it's one in four. It doesn't matter how much your parents make. And if you're a, you know, a, a Latino or a, an African-American woman, the chances of you being diabetic are two out of three. And so sometimes we have to say, well, is what we're doing currently working and then let's even start from that hypothesis. And what's interesting now is I think you've talked about uh, that there are potentially some cracks in our current system. Are we seeing sort of this shutdown and any implications on the way we, we were farming, sort of these big industrial crops? Are we seeing any breakdowns in that, in that system? Well, um, right before we got on the podcast, I did mention to you how, um, so the, the Smithfield just closed one of their meat packing plants because uh, many of the workers were sick. Um, we're also, there's, there's a lot of chatter that uh, many others are going to be closing. And um, as we have a more industrialized, centralized food system, um, that makes us extremely vulnerable from a food security perspective. And so um, there's just never been a better time to look at more regional and regenerative solutions that, um, that use real food as, you know, working with nature um, as the basis of that. I told you we needed chickens, Juliet. Told you. I've been fighting for chickens and bees for a long time. Well, it's interesting. I mean, in this COVID crisis and sort of following up on what Kelly said in, in terms of people who are having higher morbi morbidity and mortality, um, and many of that is really connected to this, you know, very poor standard American diet that's highly processed. And what I find so interesting about what we're seeing now is I think, thank, thanks to modern medicine, I think, you know, we, we, many people in our society can be overweight or obese, but just function because they can take blood pr pressure medication or control their diabetes with some kind of pharmaceutical. And there's, there's not really an obvious impact to their life otherwise. And man, this pandemic has really brought that to light that, you know, you, you know, you, you are definitely at higher risk for a lot of things, you know, if, if your, your diet is not sort of in order. 
Right. I mean, all we have is our health. <laughs> That's all we have. That's all we have is our right. health. Um, right. But unfortunately, you know, I did work in um, Dorchester, which is a section of Boston that's that's pretty um, uh, low income. And, um, you know, I think that there's a there's a lot of things that are broken and it's not just a matter of people not eating better. Um, yeah. there's, that's right. That's yeah. right. It's complicated. You know, so it's, it's so really complex and it's, it's actually not even a matter of food deserts. I was working at sort of this little like health food store, um, in this neighborhood and we were wondering why people weren't coming in. And, you know, when you've had a really crappy day, um, the last thing you want is like a healthy, you know, steamed chicken and broccoli <laughs> with brown <laughs> rice meal, right? Like, you, you know, processed food tastes good. It's, 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 a, it's a inexpensive luxury. And for a lot of people, the only luxury that they get, um, you know, your kids aren't going to fight you for it. And um, Ooh, when you're worried about big. paying rent tomorrow or your car starting the next day or not getting shot or something, you know, longevity is also a privilege that a lot of people just don't, don't have the ability to, 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 you know, care about. And so, um, you know, I think that of course, you know, as I take care of my car, I bring it to the shop to, to get oil changes. I don't expect, um, insurance to, to cover that. I also take care of my body, but, um, you know, as you mentioned before, there's a privilege in, in that. And, um, and so I, I, it's just, it's, it's crazy complicated. Um, and there's just so many levels of brokenness to the system. We we do feel like though, if you start people practicing early, you know, Secretly, sometimes Juliet and I were like, wow, we, we have failed a generation of people. We're going to lose a generation because changing behavior is so difficult. And some of these things are, are so addictive and so wired into our, our need. You know, fast food is highly addictive and, you know, porn is highly addictive and, and sugar is highly addictive. And, you know, these things tap into our sort of our, our sociobiological ancestral selves and we think the only way to sometimes break this pattern is to start much, much earlier to get kids thinking about this differently. And and I really do appreciate your your statement here that it's just not as easy as just go down to your CSA and <laughs> cook yourself dinner. Yeah. I mean, we we battle with our kids about eating more vegetables and eating better things and not, you know, accessing the junk that's available to them. And and, and you know, we have that learned tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I just want to say major props for just pointing out the obvious, which is that even the ability to discuss longevity is already a privilege. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Yeah. But I mean, we've got problems where, so in, in Massachusetts, they, um, you can use your EBT at farmer's markets, right? But they also then decided that they were going to start this other program called HIP, um, HIP or HIIP, I forget what it, exactly, it's our healthy incentive program, um, where they got an extra 40 to $80 they could spend at farmer's markets, but it could only be on fruits and vegetables. Mm. And, you know, the, the irony here is if we're looking at people who need better nutrition, should we be incentivizing them for, you know, a $6 pint of organic raspberries or should we, um, in Massachusetts, which is, you know, our growing season is really short here, but we have local meat year round. And, um, you know, or should we be giving them, you know, a $6 pound of ground local meat? Um, but yet, you know, it's the fruits and vegetables that everyone's focusing on. And so that's where I just try to 
focus my energy and, you know, kind of stick up for the local meat producers here and, you know, remind people that if we are looking to, you know, solve food insecurity, uh, meat is one of the best ways we can do that. And guess what? It's available year round. Um, Massachusetts and New England overall is really good at growing grass. And so is, uh, you know, Marin County. I know lots of producers out there. Um, and so, uh, you know, meat has a place at the table and, you know, we can't just be talking about fruits and vegetables. We, um, you had a post that really resonated with us, which was right after uh, the Oscars, there was some talk about these meatless burgers and you put up a really interesting post, which was grass-fed hamburger patties from animals that were taken care of and, and raised humanely at Walmart were this much mm-hmm. and a processed meat patty, plant patty, a non-meat <laughs> Frankenburger patty was like way more expensive. And I, I think that that sometimes highlights this, this, this notion that, you know, we can't do it cheaply. You know, underlying that is this sort of, I think, inherent interesting conversation is, you know, is meat eating bad, comma, so is it, is it, if I, am I healthier if I eat meat or is it, am I healthier if I eat no meat? And really the, this sort of, the, is this industrial meat unhealthy? And by extension, am I unhealthy because I eat industrial meat? Uh, yeah, there was a lot of questions in that. Sorry. I, uh, <laughs> I, I started talking. I'm like, oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so I went to walmart.com. I looked up Beyond Burger. And, you know, interestingly, they sell it in eight ounce packages. And so it looks like it's about the same price. As- Beyond Burger is a, a plant-based Frankenburger mm-hmm. product. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, made from, you know, not even organic uh, monocrop vegetables grown in a pretty extractive, destructive way. Um, and, and then I looked at, you know, at Walmart, you can get organic grass-fed beef. Uh, so, um, but they sell it in one pound packages. So it, it looks like a, you know, the, the package of the Beyond Burger is really large. Um, there's a lot of extra packaging there relative to how puny hmm. the, their product is. Um, but it's all just a smoke, you know, screen because, um, when you look at the price per pound, um, and I used to work for Whole Foods, so I know how the grocery industry works. You can you can always compare prices of different products by just looking at the price per pound, which is always the left of um, you know whatever the the retail price is. Um, the price per pound of of Beyond Burger was twice as much as organic grass fed beef. Um, so we we definitely have some problems in our food system with the government subsidizing um, crop production and uh, not rewarding farmers who are actually using organic practices and not penalizing farmers who are destroying the environment. Um, and and those are some of the reasons why organic and and grass fed products are more expensive. Um, but I mean, uh, even with all that taken into consideration. Beyond Burgers are ridiculously expensive and not more nutrient dense. Um, your second question, you know, if someone, you know, maybe they're living in an inner city, they don't have access to buying meat from, they can't make it to the farmer's market to buy their local meat. Um, I still recommend that they feed their their kids um, beef. Uh, as opposed to rice and beans, as opposed to even, um, 
you know, chicken or pork, uh, beef is more nutrient dense than chicken. Um, even when the cows end up on a feedlot, a lot of what they're eating is crop residue that would emit greenhouse gases if we didn't feed it to a cow anyway. Um, so it's, it's really complex. There's, it's not black and white. Um, I do think that grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative beef is something we need to be striving for. Um, but I also think that, uh, you know, telling someone that if they can't get organic grass fed, you know, unicorn beef, uh, to be feeding their kids beans and rice, which is four times the calories, um, and all those carbs compared to, uh, red meat, they should, they should go for the red meat. There's, there's more nutrients in that and, uh, less calories and, um, you know, it's just going to give their kids a better chance in life. Amazing. Thank you. I went through this exercise with my kids when I would take them shopping when they were really little. If they wanted to buy something, I would require them to be able to read all the ingredients. And if it had more than, it was already in in like straight up no, if it was more than like three to five ingredients. And -hmm. then if there were ingredients in the product, they couldn't actually read, you know, those long words you see in a lot of processed foods. That was also a, a solid no. And they would, they would try, they would give like an honest effort in the grocery store to try to read all these ingredients. Um, not to mention they're always in like two point font. So that's also hard. Um, but I noticed that actually we tried, um, a beyond burger, whatever brand it was, and just looked at the ingredients and there's like 45 or 50 ingredients in those. Um, Mm -hmm. so for me, that sort of violated like this first principle that, you know, if, if I'm just trying to eat actual food, um, and if I define, um, things that are actual food as things that are not 27 million ingredients. Um, you know, that, the, that sort of solidly for me fell in the, this is not food category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, when you guys get my book and, and take a look at it, you'll see, you know, Rob and I went through, we pretty much did like a, a systematic review of all the research on, um, typical beef, uh, versus grass fed beef, as far as nutrition goes. And we looked at glyphosate, we looked at antibiotic resistance, we looked at nutrients, uh, we looked at the fatty acids, everything. And, um, there's, it's really hard to make a case that grass-fed beef is substantially more nutrient-dense than typical meat. Um, so from a nutrition perspective, as a practitioner, um, you know, first off, uh, I think that it would be irresponsible for me to tell somebody to only eat organic broccoli or don't eat broccoli, right? Or only eat organic vegetables or don't eat vegetables at all, right? Like we would n- no one would ever say that. Um, And the same thing with meat. I think that, you know, you should eat the best meat that you can afford, but if you only have access to industrial meat, it's still a better choice than um, plant-based alternatives, which are also highly industrialized or, you know, four times the calories, you know, so uh, for personal nutrition, that's my position. Um, But then of course, there are very good environmental and ethical reasons why I think better meat is um, preferable. So we're running out of time and this has been so awesome, but I, before I let you go, I, I know you have a lot going on with this book and documentary and you obviously work on a farm. Um, are you still counseling clients one-on-one on nutrition? Is that still part of your practice? I did take a break for a little bit, but I'm going to open it up. Um, right now I'm sort of doing uh, one-off consults where people can just kind of have like an individual session. I have another dietitian that's been working with me that's been taking more of the long-term clients um, that, you know, are, are seeing people sort of, you know, on a recurring basis. 
Um, so it's really like right now things um, are a little bit quiet because I just haven't been traveling as much because all my conferences have been canceled. Um, <laughs> Same here. And so I have a little extra time. So I'm, I'm opening up just for um, a handful of people that, um, that really want to see me in instead of Rachel, uh, my other RD, who's amazing. Um, and as things pick up more with the book, uh, she'll be taking on more of my course load, uh, sorry, my client load. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I am, I still have my foot in the door as a clinician. Do you feel like just as a follow-up, because I, I want to keep reframing this, that you're sort of at both ends. You can sort of, you've wa walked around the entire cow for lack of a better phrase, where you're seeing people come to you looking for nutrition as a registered dietitian same registered dietitians I'd find in a hospital and you guys are still, you know, working a farm and, and, and have a farmer's market. What do you, do you feel like that gives you unique insight into some of the points you're making and the conversations you're having? Well, uh, I should mention that I'm not working on the farm right now. Um, so I wouldn't call myself technically a farmer at this time, although I have in the past called myself a farmer and I, I was working on the farm more in the past. Um, once I, um, you know, decided to be more full-time in the nutrition and writing space, um, I sort of, you know, I just enjoy the farm and it's actually been better for my relationship with my husband anyway, that I, I don't work with him. <laughs> Let me clarify. Your family has a farm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so our son who's 16 is our best tractor driver, works on the farm a lot. Um, my daughter works in the market and, uh, loves the customer service end of it. Uh, she's 14. Um, and, and I have in the past run the, our farmer's market program and, and all of that. But, um, but at the moment, uh, I'm more of a clinician and author and, and, uh, you know, speaker and everything. But I think that my experience over the last 18 years with, um, such a close tie to real food agriculture, um, gives me a very unique perspective on, on how to eat and, and, kind of just a, what a different food system could look like. Well, and, you know, I really, we can't wait to watch your documentary because we know, I mean, we've sat down and watched Super Sassy with our kids. One of our daughters even did her science uh, experiment, you know, on, you know, McDonald's burgers. And, uh, you know, so it really has been a really powerful tool to educate. And our, one of our favorite movies last year, of course, you know, is Biggest Little Farm. Mm-hmm. And it was such, our kids came home so inspired and actually wanted to go to the farm. We talked about it a ton and about the food choices and the ethics and animals and plant diversity and all the complex conversations. Thank you so much for taking on these, you know, what feel like really colored and difficult conversations and almost politically charged conversations on behalf of us who, you know, have day jobs. I really just want to thank you for continuing to really highlight the the nuances and the complexity in some of the conversations, and then also being the voice for those who, who sometimes don't, uh, you know, we aren't considering in this conversation of, is this healthy or is this unhealthy? Thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest in my work and um, for having me on. Thank you so much. So just a couple of logistics. Um, can you tell us when people can mm -hmm. look for your book and is it available now for pre-order? And also when should we keep our eyes out for the documentary and where? Yes. 
so the book is available for pre-order at sacredcow.info or at their favorite um, online bookseller. And um, we are offering, um, Rob and I have a couple in, you know, little gifts for folks who pre-order. So we've got a, a cookbook and a couple other things that we're, that we're offering. Um, so they can do that at sacredcow.info. They can sign up for my newsletter list and know when, um, so the book comes out July 14th and uh, the film will likely come out in the fall. We're talking to distributors right now um, and we're almost done with the fine cut of the film. So we're very close. I'm talking well, with the animators now and with the composers. It's really cool to see, you know, what the composer is coming up with for different scenes for the, um, the film. And, you know, he's talking to me about, I think there needs to be cello here. And I've just never thought about things like that. Yeah, so that's so interesting. it's really, really fun. Um, and it's really coming together and we've got very strong interest from some pretty major, um, streaming services. So it, it will go probably straight to, um, streaming and it's likely going to be with one of the major, uh, streaming companies. Um, we also have, and I, I'm still waiting for the, the signature on the contract, but, um, we do have a verbal commitment and we're moving forward with, um, a pretty big celebrity as the narrator. So, um, I will let everyone know as soon as I'm able to talk about that. Well, the new Dune movie is what I'm living for and your movie. I can't wait. (laughs) I, uh, it's just fantastic. Um, Will you just hit us with your handle on social media? Because you do, you're such a prolific writer and mm-hmm. uh, I love for people to just be able to deep dive. We, we have time to maybe ponder some of these conversations right now. You know, I'm doing all the shopping for our, you know, Juliet's parents and, you know, there's just, if there ever was a time to kind of be thinking or have a moment to be thinking about these, these complex issues instead of worrying about getting my kids to, you know, water polo practice. Now's the time. Mm-hmm. Where do we find you? Yeah. So, um, I have two websites. I have sustainabledish.com, which is where I write about recipes and nutrition. And then sacredcow.info is specifically about, um, you know, all the things we were talking about here and they can find information about the, um, film and book, um, and more meat centric blog posts. And, um, I'm most active on Instagram and that's at sustainable dish. Uh, I'm sometimes on Twitter at sustainable dish. I don't love Twitter that much. And, um, <laughs> Facebook is kind of dead these days. Um, I actually post more on my personal Facebook than my business Facebook, but it's also sustainable dish there as well. Well, we will put all of that in the show notes. So nobody needs to remember that. And Diana, I just want to echo what Kelly said. It's so great to talk to you. Thank you for being, um, sort of a different and alternative voice to what we're seeing out there in the internet and streaming services sphere. And we're just really grateful for having you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it! You better stop!